I think uh, the news of the week to me this week um, was that uh, Harry and Meghan are giving up being royals. Did anybody follow any of this stuff? I don't know. They're backing away. Thank you for the clarification. They're backing away. Like I saw that and I was like, that's amazing. That stuff is amazing to think of a a monarchy that's a thousand years old, essentially, or, or more. I don't know how old the British Empire is. And to hear this stuff happening is incredible. I, 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 I thought about the series of responses I had. First of all, one response I had was, I wish I had that luxury to decide, like, I don't want to be royal anymore and all the stuff that comes with it. I, another response was, good for them. Like, live your own life, move to northern Canada and do your thing or wherever they're going to move. Like, good for them. And then another part of me is like, morons. Like, who takes being like extraordinary and having extraordinary resources and privileges, who takes that extraordinary privilege and then kind of punts it away? But by all accounts, these two people believe that they can accomplish more, uh, give more, make more impact by being ordinary than they can by being extraordinary. And that's pretty incredible uh, to me because most of us would rather be extraordinary than ordinary, and yet it feels like we're born into ordinary and we have to sort of push past the the gravity of ordinary in our lives. But these people who are uh, extraordinary by birth and extraordinary by status are now trying to make an effort to move toward being ordinary. That's not our journey. I I don't know all of you super well, but I do know enough about you to know that I don't think you're like undercover royals, kings and queens of some foreign land, or princes, or lords, or baronesses, or anything like that. I think I know you well enough to know that's probably not true of you. I think I know you well enough to know that none of you are like secret millionaires, like undercover millionaires. I don't think that's any of you. If it is, like I do want to know that, because I'm going to just have some great stories to talk about you, I talk with you about. I, I, most of us just feel very ordinary, and so over the uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the life of uh, King David of Israel, because here's a guy who goes from being totally ordinary to being very, very extraordinary, uh, put into a different path. And, uh, and, and the big idea of that is um, ordinary people, because God only uses ordinary people. We tend to read the Bible and think, oh, these people slayed giants, and they built arcs, and they wrestled with lions, and they did all of these amazing things, and we see them as extraordinary, but the truth is they're just ordinary. Most of the people God uses are forgotten, invisible, they're the second born, they're people that society had rejected, but so ordinary people in the hands of an extraordinary God can be, like, can do extraordinary things. And it's not that God needs us to muscle up and get better. It's that he just really just wants us to come and say, whatever you want. Whatever you want, God, I am available. I am ordinary, but you're extraordinary, and I want to live an extraordinary life. So 1 Samuel chapter 16, page 136 in the small print, 265, I believe, in the large print. We're going to read the first 10 verses today, and then we're going to pause, and then we're going to come back to the last three or four. All right, so here we go. Now the Lord said to Samuel, and Samuel was a prophet. Uh, he was, um, if you look right before 1 Samuel, there's a book called Judges. And the judges weren't like judges with British wigs and gavels. The judges were people who kind of ruled, but not as kings, over God's people, Israel. And so Samuel is the last of these judges before the Israelite monarchy kind of comes into being. The people wanted a king, and eventually God sort of gives them their way and says, oh, you can have a king, and I won't be your king. 
king anymore. And so Samuel is the last of these prophets. And Samuel has anointed a man named Saul as king. And Saul, the Bible says, was a head taller than anybody else and good looking. Man, Saul is a good-looking man, and, uh, and Samuel goes to anoint and look for a king, and he finds Saul, and Saul's good-looking, he becomes king. The problem for Saul is, as great as he was in good looks, he was equally not great and deficient in character. He was fearful, and he had some massive, massive fear of man, not trusting God, character issues. And so Saul makes a critical mistake and doesn't follow Samuel's instructions when Samuel had gotten some uh, instruction from God. And basically God's hand had been on Saul and God removes his hand from Saul. And so Samuel's grieving when we pick up here in 1 Samuel 16 because the king, God has removed his hand from the king and he's mourning and lamenting what's going on. And so it says in verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel... How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him or I've removed my hand from him being king over Israel? Now fill your horn with oil and go and I'll send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. In other words, Jesse from Bethlehem. Bethlehem of the uh, the 12 tribes of Israel is in the south and it's really small. It's a super insignificant part of the country of Israel at this point. And so he's going to look for this man, Jesse, uh, from Bethlehem. For I provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you, take a cow, and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded him and said to Bethlehem, uh, and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and they said, Do you come peaceably? Because whenever a prophet would come into the city with an offering like this, it was not good news. It typically meant somebody was in trouble, and somebody was about to have to die, and it wasn't necessarily just that cow. So the people are freaking out. They're trembling, it says. They're like, Do you come peaceably? And he says, I do come peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. He says, consecrate yourself, set yourselves apart, make yourself, like purify yourself and be made holy, and then come, to me, come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice because he knew God had something really big for this one family. Verse 6, when they came, he looked on uh, Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Man, if you like to underline your Bible, that's a good one. If you like to even underline in the church's paper Bible, that's fine with me too. That's such a good verse, right? Verse 8, then Jesse, man, it's like a little stampede. Oh, Skylar and Michaela. I see him. I love those kids. Verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab, the second son, and he made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 9, then Jesse made Shammah pass by, the third son. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 10, and Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. 
And so a few things I want us to see here this morning. Uh, let's get the backstory really quickly before we kind of move into how this works out in our life. God says, I love this in verse one, God says, I'm going to provide a king for myself. I'm going to provide a king for myself. Whatever God wants to do in the world, he doesn't tend to do it because he thinks he needs us. God's going to do what he's going to do in the world, whether we get on board or not. He's just a lot of times going to say, Renee, I want to work powerfully through you. Hope, I want to work powerfully through you. God's going to do what he's going to do. He says here, I will provide a king for myself. I will do this. God's going to provide, and God says he's going to get glory by what he's going to do. And so he says in verse 3, I will show you what I'm going to do. I will tell you who to pick. God has a plan. Skip down to verse 6 and verse 7. I love this part because I feel like this is a story that my parents, my mom and my grandparents would have told me as a kid. Uh, here comes David, or excuse me, not David yet. Here comes Samuel, and he's looking for the next king. And he goes to Jesse, and he knows Jesse's got the son. And he says, bring me your sons. And so the first son is Eliab. And Eliab literally means God is father. Man, what a strong what a strong name. If you're looking for a king of God's country, when the kid walks in with the name God is Father, you got to think that's the one. Not only that, he's the firstborn. How many of you are firstborn? Man, isn't it good to be firstborn? Like, you know how you, like, when you're the firstborn, all you secondborns and lastborns, like, this thing going to make sense to you. Your parents would never say you're the favorite. But man, they look at you, that firstborn, with just a pride in the eye. You know what I mean? And they just look. And so here's Eliab, God, his father. And here he is, the firstborn. And, and man, the Bible says in verse 6, he is good looking. And he is tall. And he is handsome. And, and Jesse's so proud. And he's like, oh, you're looking for the next king? Here, look at Eliab. Look at Eliab. God is my father. And Samuel's thinking, this is God to be the one. Look how good looking this guy is. The first one, his name. Oh, the Lord has said it on a T. This, this has got to be the one. And so he's watching and he's looking at the traits. The problem was Saul looked good too. And Saul was tall. And so the Lord, very quietly, Samuel's trying to look. Samuel's trying to figure out, is this the one? And very quietly, because God doesn't usually scream, God says, this isn't him. This isn't him. I've rejected this one. This isn't the one. And so uh, the Lord says, I look on the heart. You're looking at the outside, but I look at the heart. And so then here comes son number two in verse eight, Abinadab. Now this name means father of promise. Now I can just see Samuel sitting there thinking, eh, it's not God as father, but, you know, father of promise, that's not bad either. Maybe this is the one. And Shammah is, or Abinadab is tall and and uh, he's thinking, it's not Eliab, but man, he looks pretty good. And God quietly again says, this isn't the one either. This isn't the one. So now Samuel's kind of scratching his head and he goes, is there another one? And so here comes Jesse, he brings out another son, Shama. Now Shama's name is not a really great name. It doesn't, it's kind of a negative Debbie Downer kind of name. And so I can just see Samuel saying, oh, not a great name, but still tall, third son, maybe this is the one. Can't you just see the disappointment and curiosity beginning to build for him? And God says, nope, it's not the one either. And they go through this four more times. 
Except the next four, don't even, we don't even get their name. David's brothers, there's son number four, doesn't even name him. They wheel him out, and God says, Samuel, it's not the one. Here comes son number five. You can see Jesse scratching his head. Samuel's looking confused. Here comes son number five. Let's say maybe he's good looking. He might be tall too. Uh, maybe he's like really smart. Here he comes. He stands there. We still don't get his name. God says, nope, that's not the one. Here comes son number six. And first of all, I'm thinking, how do you have so many sons? It's amazing, right? Here comes son number six. And God's spirit says to Samuel, he's not the one. Son number seven, the last one in the room. And God said, this isn't the one. And I think Samuel in that moment is scratching his head. Because he's got to feel like God told me it was going to be Jesse's sons and we've moved through all the sons. And Samuel looks at Jesse and says, I'm confused. Is this all your sons? And Jesse says, nope, I got one more. I got one more. Now, before we talk about the one more, I want to give you the big idea today. If you write anything down today, write this down. Heart is greater than height. Heart is greater than height. Verse 7, let me read it to you again. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, talking about Eliam, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord... The God, our God, the living God, looks at the heart. Samuel saw heart. He saw good looks. He saw birth order. He saw strong names. God saw heart. And we don't tend to do this. Let me give you kind of every good working definition biblically that I can give you of heart. All right? The, this is written in Hebrew. This, uh, David lived a thousand years before Jesus. And so this idea of heart means a lot of things. It can mean the soul, kind of our gut. You know, when you get that feeling in your stomach that oh, I shouldn't be doing that or I should be doing that, that is our heart. We think of our heart as here, but the biblical idea of heart is something in the gut. It's our affections, the things we love, the things that get us out of bed in the morning. It's our intentions. It's a source of life. It's what drives a person. Heart drives a person. God says to Samuel, you look at the outward appearance. Man looks at the outward appearance. I look at what drives a person. But here's my favorite word for heart. My favorite definition is capacity. Capacity. God looks at what we can become. We tend to look at what we currently are. Heart is greater than height. Capacity is greater than reality. And God sees heart. We tend to see height in ourselves and in others. We tend to see height. Uh, we tend to see outward appearance. We look at stature. We look at weight. We look at looks, we look at reputation, we look at knowledge. How much does this person know? Man, I remember being in high school and like being enslaved to the idea of what did I score on the SAT and what was my GPA because I knew that I was about to move into a phase of life where it didn't matter what my capacity and potential were. All that mattered was what did I score on the test that took six hours on a Saturday and what did somebody assess my grade to be? That's a height issue, okay? That's a height issue. Reputation, knowledge, resume, experience. God sees heart. We see, is this person from the right family? Are they gifted? Do they have resources? That's height stuff. God sees heart. And heart is greater than height. And we even do this in church, by the way. 
We even look at height in church in a lot of ways. We look at morality. How moral is this person? Have you ever um, felt like you walked into a church space and you were being judged, in, like, not intentionally, maybe just accidentally, but people had this morality scale and they were looking at you trying to figure out where you stood on that scale? Has that ever happened to you? Amen. Okay, good. Thank you, Rochelle. Maybe it's just me and you, but I've been there, and I felt and at times like if this is the scale, and this is like Mother Teresa, and this is Osama bin Laden, I've walked in sometimes and felt like they were thinking I was over here, right? They were measuring the height of my morality. We do this. It's just natural. Man looks at uh, the outward appearance. Um, we look at how squeaky clean someone's past is. I sat in a meeting the other day, and um, I was asked the question. See, there's five, the five closest neighborhoods around us, Charlestown, the North End, Chelsea, Everett, East Somerville, and uh, what was the fifth one? I can't remember what we said, the fifth one. Oh, the West End, right? Population, 150,000 between those five neighborhoods. And there was a question because none of those uh, five neighborhoods currently have a healthy growing, multiplying, English-speaking church. And so the question was, who do you know right now who could go to one of those five cities or neighborhoods and become a pastor in one of those places? Or who could start a church in other parts of Boston? And I'll tell you what, like I was sitting there with Scott, we were at this meeting together, and I'm making this list, and one of the people that God put on my heart to put on the list has never been to our church and if I were to say man I think you have what it takes one day to be a pastor this person would say I could never be a pastor you don't know what's in my past see man looks at what's in our past God looks at our capacity what can be in church we can look at biblical knowledge a few of you say to me man I wish I, I feel like I'm starting late in life I wish I knew such and such. I wish I knew more of the Bible. I wish I knew how to follow God. God's not looking at what you currently know, your biblical knowledge. God's looking at your capacity, what you can become. We look at our church background, our stability, even our religious appearance. We can walk in and some people on Sunday, man, like we can look like you have got it together. Some people walk in and you're just happy to be here. You know what I mean? Like I remember as a kid pulling up at Mabel White Baptist Church and uh, we would get out of the Buick and my brother and I would be in the back seat just slugging each other because that's when you didn't have to sit in seat belts. You could sit up on the back dashboard, floorboard, you could do whatever. And we were, it was like, it was like a cage match in the back seat, right? And my mom let it go on the whole ride to church and we would pull in that parking lot and my mom, before we opened that door, would say, you stop that right now. We need to act like we love each other, <laughs> right? <laughs> Right? That's what we do, right? Like, that's what we do. And we want to give this appearance that we've got it together. Let me tell you what the problem with that is. One of the sweetest couples I've ever pastored had the most dysfunctional marriage I've ever seen. Now, their marriage made it. It took a lot of counseling and a lot of God's grace. But I remember in the height of their problems, and their problems were awful, watching them in small group and people saying, man, that's a beautiful, that's a perfect couple. What they didn't know was I was counseling them four hours a week for the dysfunction of their marriage. Can I tell you what it was? They looked good. And they knew how to act in church. 
And so they had put on a face that people were believing this is a great couple. They looked stable, but their hearts were bad. So they had height, they shouldn't have heart. And God saw their capacity and he saved and redeemed their marriage from total brokenness and chaos. But it wasn't about what they look like. God sees heart and heart is greater than height. Do I, does she, does he have a heart for God? Do I, does he, does she have a heart of God? Do we have the heart of God? Because I believe we can capture that. Have you ever met someone, you're like, man, that guy is like Jesus. Being with that woman is like hanging out with Jesus. I love it when we hang out with people like that. It's powerful. And that's where Jesse finds himself when we get to the runt. All right, let's look at verse 11. So he's gone through these seven sons and there's no more. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest. It's a fun word. Uh, It means the youngest or the smallest. In our vernacular, it would be the runt. It would be tiny. Oh, there's one more. Oh, tiny. He's out in the field, right? A little runt of the bunch. He doesn't even name his own kid. He doesn't even name his own child. He says, there remains yet the youngest, the smallest, the little guy, the runt. But behold, he's out keeping the sheep. It would be like saying, I got one more son, but he's out, he's out changing the kitty litter out of the box, right? Like, surely he's not going to be the, king, the next king of Israel. He's changing the kitty litter. He's watching the sheep. He's nothing. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we won't sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Modern translation. He was baby-faced, but he had that something in his eyes. He had something. He had that glow in his eyes. He was baby-faced. He literally still had the peach fuzz on his cheeks, little guy. But he had something in his eyes, and he was handsome. That's what Samuel saw. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took out the horn of oil. He probably told David, Take a knee, son. And David bent down. Cracked open this horn of oil and he poured it on David's head. And man, I can just smell the oil filling the room, dripping down David's head right there in front of the seven brothers. As God's, as God's anointing, God's affirmation came upon him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed on David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and he went to Ramah. He's the youngest, the smallest, the most insignificant, doesn't even name his own kid. And yet here he becomes the king of God's people. There's a couple of things here that I almost ran past this weekend, this week in preparing. One, Samuel still is looking at the outside. It says David comes in and he's different from Eliab and Abinadab and Shammah and the four other unnamed brothers. It says he's ruddy, he's peach peach fuzzed, he's got he's got striking eyes though and he's handsome again Samuel is right back to looking at the outside and so if Samuel had a choice he would still have said it's not these seven it's got to be this one let's get the oil but you know what he does he's smart enough to sit and wait one more minute and in that moment just listening to God God says yeah this is the one this is the one if we're not careful we'll zi- we have to discipline ourselves not to look at our height and others' height. 
and to look at our heart and to look at others' heart. It is just our tendency, even as the people of God, to size people up and measure people up. And God is looking at the heart. And he says, this is the one. Anoint him. Affirm him. And he does. And God's spirit rushed on David from that day forward. This idea of anointing, this isn't even in my notes. We're going totally off notes here. It's always dangerous. This idea of anointing is one of the most beautiful ideas in the entire Bible. First of all, in a hot Middle Eastern culture, when you took out anointing oil and poured it on the head of someone, it would change the smell of the room. Totally change the smell of the room. But even more than the environment that anointing created is the powerful symbol of what's going on there. Can I use you for a second, Donnie? Come here real quick. You can put your Bible down. Just come here. When someone was anointed, it had a medical idea, but it also had a blessing idea. And, uh, and I love this idea of blessing because the idea of blessing goes all the way from Genesis uh, even into the end of the New Testament, right? And so Jesus a lot of times says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God. In the Old Testament, a dad would bring his oldest son in and his children, and he would bless those kids, right? It's this similar idea in a lot of ways to anointing. And what it is, like, God would... Here, come a little here so I don't lose the recording, right? Okay. So God, they would take out this anointing oil, and they would pour it on the head. He pours it on David's head. And it rushes down. One of the Psalms even talks about this. It says how beautiful it is when God's people get along. It's like anointing oil coming down on the head and then running down right here into his chin hair. You can smile a little bit, man. Uh, running down on the shoulders, dripping down. Man, in that moment, Samuel anoints Jesse's son David. And that anointing oil comes down all over David. And as it does... Just David is feeling not just the feeling of that anointing oil, he's feeling the affirmation of God. God saying, you're the one, my man. You're small, you're red-faced, you don't have anything to offer as far as height goes, David. Peach fuzz, David. But you're the one, and God's anointing is coming down on him. All right, you can sit down. Beautiful job. You nailed that. And when the Bible says that God blesses us, it means that God's hand of affirmation is laid on the back of our head. And it means that God is pouring his anointing out on us through his son, Jesus. Jesus is the anointing oil. When someone becomes a Christian, when someone becomes a Christ follower, what happens is exactly what literally happens to David here. When someone becomes a Christian, the same thing metaphorically happens. God's, God's because of Jesus, God's affirmation rushes down on our heads. And then it says the spirit of the Lord, it doesn't say the spirit of the Lord stumbled upon David or just sort of made his way onto David. It says, and I want you to think about a hurricane coming through, right? It says the spirit of the Lord rushed onto David. Like winds, like walking up Medford Street in the middle of a heavy wind right there outside the gym, man. That wind can be so hard coming up Medford Street, but it feels like we're having to lean in. My Owen, who weighs about 50 pounds, soaking wet. Like when we're coming up Medford Street, he's got to lean forward to get in. It says the spirit of the Lord rushed on David, rushed on David, and never left him ever again. Which is powerful because in the next four weeks, we're going to see that David did some pretty evil stuff. But I want to tell you, when God anoints people and affirms people, his spirit never leaves people. 
Man, one of the most dangerous things that most of us can tend to believe is that God loves us as we, if we behave and he doesn't if we don't. And one of the most beautiful things I ever saw is this idea because I wrestled for a lot of years. Like my pastor would, you know, at the end, a lot of times we'll pray and I'll give you a moment to ask Christ to come into your life and you can become a follower of Jesus. And when I was, uh, when I was a teenager, a lot of times I would pray that prayer over and over, especially on weeks when I didn't behave very well because I thought, surely I have misbehaved this week so badly that God has stopped loving me. And somebody pointed me one time to a verse in the Bible. It says this. It says that those that God knows, they cannot be snatched from his hand. And so uh, for a moment, just uh, humor me and put uh, your finger in your hand and try to yank it out. If, if you can, like if you can yank it out, then one of your arms is much weaker than the other one. You need to go do some like curls on one side, right? Like when someone gives their life to Jesus truly becomes anointed, part of God's family. His spirit rushes on us. We cannot be removed from his hand. And so we don't have to feel anxious about, man, does God still love me? Has God given up on me? Is he done with me? He's not because he doesn't look at height. He looks at heart. And height sizes up how well we're performing. Heart sees our capacity and what we're becoming. And God only chooses to look at heart. And so what literally happened to David that day when God said, this is the one. If you're a Christian, God has looked at you and said, this is the one. And he anoints him. God has anointed you. Not some weird, creepy, Pentecostal way. God has said, you're the one. I have big things ahead for you, Alicia. I have big things ahead for you, Barb. I have big things ahead for you, Jamar. I have big things ahead for you, Rochelle. Right? And then his spirit rushes upon the Christian, never, ever to leave them. So I just want to share a couple things with you. If you feel too young to be useful to God, we have a lot of teenagers here. God's blessed our church with a lot of teenagers. If you feel too young, can I remind you of 1 Timothy 4.12 that says, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. But set an example for the older believers in life and love and faith and speech and impurity. If you feel like you're too weak or insignificant like David, be encouraged by 1 Corinthians 1.27 where Paul says, I didn't come to you with strong persuasive speech, but I came to you in weakness. He says, and God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Man, when you are weak, you are strong. When you feel the weakest and most vulnerable, that's the place where you're the most God-dependent and you are therefore the most strong. If you feel uh, like David, that word's in Hebrew is hakaton. If you feel like the youngest, smallest, most insignificant, be encouraged like David. Because I want to challenge you with this. Think of the most significant Christians in your life. Take a moment real quick and think about the most significant Christian that you've ever known. For you, is it Coach O'Brien? Maybe. You were, yeah. The most significant Christian you've ever known. Who is it? Here's the powerful thing about the most significant Christian you've ever known. How many of you, that person was a pastor? One, two, three, four, five. That means that probably 20 of us, it wasn't a pastor. It's pretty incredible. See, God's not looking for more pastors and missionaries to turn the world upside down. 
God's looking for people like my mom, who was a single mom who worked three jobs, but made sure we were at church and made sure we had a capacity to understand that the world didn't revolve around us, that there was a God in this universe and that I needed my life to revolve around him and not me. Or like my granddad, who was a probation officer. My granddad actually arrested Little Richard a couple of times. My mom showed us this front page news uh, story from years ago of the Macon Telegraph the other day. It was from like 20 years ago. And it was Little Richard. He had come back to Macon, Georgia, where he is from. And Little Richard had autographed the front page of his newspaper for my granddad. And it said, to Mr. Sanders, I wouldn't have gotten here without you. X's and O's, Little Richard, right? I'm sure those X's and O's drove my granddad crazy, right? Uh, My granddad, as a probation officer, as a policeman, God used him to work through him to influence more people than had he been a pastor. The most influential man in my life when I was a teenager was a guy named Chuck Shaheen. Chuck's family ran an office furniture store in our town of Warner Robins, Georgia. Chuck was probably 40. He drove cool cars. He owned a business. He was single. He dated uh, pretty women. But he was a good man. And Chuck taught me to read the Bible. He taught me that I could not be a, I could follow Jesus and not be a weirdo. And he taught me that following God affected every area of my life where I wasn't really following God. Man, that changed me. I wasn't a pastor. It was an office supply uh, furniture store owner. God, if you feel insignificant and like, oh man, God can't use me in the same way he's going to use so-and-so, be encouraged. Preachers don't change the world. Preachers don't change the world. I don't have any preachers in my family tree. People ask me sometimes, how'd you become a pastor? Did you have a dad who's a pastor or a granddad who's a pastor? I didn't. We have no pastors in my family tree. God's not looking for a bunch of professional paid Christians. He's just looking for people who are going to be fully surrendered to him, who are more concerned about their heart and their heart's capacities than their height and the capacity of what this world says that they are. Heart is greater than height. Heart, let me just tell you, I think we got a couple of slides for this. Heart, by the way, is not a self-made trait. You can't make heart. You cannot make heart. Heart is God-given. In Ezekiel 36, uh, God is speaking with Ezekiel, and he says, I'm going to take out these people's heart of stone, and I'm going to put in it a heart of flesh. I'm going to take their dead heart out, and I'm going to make it alive. It's Ezekiel 36, 26 through 28. The, the idea there is that you can take a bad person and make him good, right? This is Pygmalion, my fair lady, Right? We could take someone who has no manners and teach them manners. We could teach someone who steals not to steal. Only God has the capability to take what is dead and make it alive. Only God has the capability to take what is stone and make it flesh and life-breathing. And so heart isn't self-made. Heart is God-given. God's not asking us to go from bad to good. We can manage that. Only God turns stone to flesh. So the question is, and this is important... Do I have God's heart? Is your heart and God's heart aligned? When you're coaching the guys on the court, is your heart and God's heart aligned? When you're doing business in your business, when you're running your monogramming business, is your heart and God's heart aligned? When you're loving your kids, is your heart 
Do you have God's heart? Is your heart aligned with his heart? When you're interacting with your parents and grandparents, is your heart aligned with God's heart? The second thing I want to tell you really quickly, God wants all of you. That's heart, capacity. God wants all of you, heart, not part of you, height. See, part of you offering the best of ourselves is height. Like I want to walk into church and you think I've got it all together. Like I like it when you think I've got it together, not when you think I'm a mess. Like I would prefer Carson not come up here and say, hey, we've gotten to know JD and Natalie just a little bit and those people are a wreck. We live with Barb and Hope for a month. I would prefer Barb not come up here and be like, those people are a hot mess. Like I don't want that. That's height. I want you to see the best of me. But height is different than heart. And when we give God our heart, we're offering all of ourselves. We're offering, oh, I know this about the Bible, and I go to church, and I'm generous, and I have helped old ladies cross the street and rescued cats from trees. Like, that's a height thing. But God wants our heart, so God also wants to see all our dirty, disgusting thoughts. And God wants the places where we curse out our neighbor rather than love them. And God wants the place where we're selfish, and our hearts are so disgusting that we look like moral monsters. God wants all of us, not just the best of us. Can I tell you, as a pastor, the flattest sermons I've ever preached in my life, the absolute ones that fell like, on dead ears were the ones where I thought I was really funny and really smart, where I thought I was giving God the best of me. That's height. The sermons, the messages where we left and we were like, whew, man, God was there. We're full of heart. They were me saying, God, I'm an idiot. And I don't know how to do this. And if you don't light this thing on fire and you do it, then it's just not going to work. God wants my heart and he wants all of me and he wants the same for you. And he's made the way by sending Jesus to exchange with us. The gospel isn't about us amping it up, but about God changing us and having all of us. So if the first question is, do I have God's heart? The second question is, does God have all of my heart? Every bit of it. I've loved him the last year watching Carson lead a small group here, having never been to one and leading one. What that is birthed out of is not him saying, I've got such a great personality and I'm so good at leading a discussion that I got this. It's him saying, I'm all in on following God. Here's an opportunity before. My wife is smarter than me and what I can't do, she will handle and we will do it. That's surrender. Carla Marrero is not in here today. Carla Marrero has the heart of God on giving. It is powerful and precious to watch her live surrendered as it comes to her finances in a powerful way as a public school teacher here in Boston. God has every bit of her heart. She's so generous. I think about Kayla who runs our kids ministry. Some of you don't even know her because she's never up here. She left a home ownership and uh, working, uh, having a good job down in South Carolina. She came to Charlestown, fell in love with this neighborhood, and said, I want to be part of seeing a church planted in this neighborhood. She literally said, God, you have all of me. You have my house, you have my job, you have all the days of my life. And now she's almost never up here because she's down there running our kids' ministry on Sundays and serving. That's powerful. That's saying, God, you can have all of me, not just the best of me. God wants all of us, no matter how insignificant or small we feel, what would it look like if God had our hearts 100% with nothing held back? What would it look like if God had your heart 100% nothing held back? In 2020, I want to encourage you not to give God your best. 
sounds terrible, doesn't it? JD told me not to give God my best. God doesn't just want your best. God wants all of you. He wants all of you. What's the thing that you're the most ashamed of that you don't want anybody to know? God wants that. What's the thing, the place where you feel so small and vulnerable and useless? Can I tell you God wants that? The area in your past that makes you the most angry or the most misty-eyed, God wants that. See, Eliab and Abinadab and Shammah, they all walked by and God said, they're not the ones because they had it all together and they looked like the ones. But God doesn't look at the outside. God looks at our hearts and God wants all of our hearts. And so, man, I want to tell you, uh, somebody asked me this week, they said, how can I pray for your church this week? And here was my prayer that I asked them to pray. My prayer for you this year is that anything that you would be holding back from God, that you would put it right here on the table and say, you can have it all. You can have it all. And I think as we live with everything on the table, God's going to do incredible things. But our tendency is to not put everything on the table. Our tendency is to offer God our heart, but God sees our height, but God sees our heart. Let me pray for us.